Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? Hello and welcome back to I Foresee Trouble with Daily and Wallace. It's Damien back here again. Hello Yay! everyone. Yeah, hola, hola. <laughs> Do you know what a fella said to me last week? Yeah. I think that Damien fella is real good. Ouch. And I said to myself, geez, that fella must have been listening to the podcast for the last few weeks. I can't remember the last time Damien Very turned true. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he was organising Catching up on all the old episodes. Yeah, it's my comeback yeah. episode today. So nice to be back in the studio. I was away. I had a, a really nice time in Cuba. Um, oh, brag, brag. That's all for another We've episode. We've never been to Cuba, have we, Mick? We have a lot to talk oh. about with Cuba right now as well. There's so much happening there. It's not in the news Maybe we'll do an episode on that in the um, in the near future. But at the moment, uh, we can't escape from the reality of war in Europe right now as well. So um, we have to talk about the situation in, in Ukraine right now. Can you maybe just start? We haven't done an episode in a while. Just tell us where we are. And then we'll talk about like three months into the, re- the conflict now. What's the route for uh, a resolution to this conflict? Stony silence, um, because... Tr- so if I don't, I'm, I'm often accused, I'm usually accused of talking too much. Go on there, start. Just, <laughs> I think the silence reflects the fact that it's very difficult question to answer three months on. Nothing has changed and everything has changed. Really, what we have is more of the same. Um, continued deaths, destruction and no end in sight. And Mick made the point very early on that, uh, you know, for peace to happen, you have to have want to have peace. I think it's very clear now that this war will end when America wants it to end. That's the stage we're at now. So it started at the beginning where the war was very much about we need weapons to defend Ukraine and all that type of thing. But over the past period, both US officials and indeed uh, EU officials have been more open that this is a proxy war against the United States. And what that basically means is that these Western powers are prepared to use Ukraine in a war against Russia. And people would listen to us and say, but what are you talking about? Sure, Russia started it. They invaded Ukraine. And that's absolutely true. They did. Uh, But now we're in a situation where the war is being prolonged now in the interests, really, of uh, NATO and the West. And, you know, that's a bad place to be, really, isn't it? You know, because... The Americans want this keeping going. I mean, every meeting we're at now, the shopping lists are out in terms of militarism and where they cannot get enough of it. So there's no US troops on the ground. The war is carrying on at a certain pace. The refugees are coming out at a certain pace. People are being killed at a certain pace. But the main thing is, is the armaments are being shipped in and the squeeze has been put on in terms of the sanctions. I mean, there was even a a story of, uh, was actually uh, released by the Ukrainian uh, side and... uh, they acknowledged that when Boris Johnson went to Kiev, he uh, and Zelensky had talked about uh, 
making some progress on negotiations, uh, Boris Johnson said no. No, 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 don't negotiate, no. We see, yeah, I think the Brits obviously see this as an opportunity to harm the German economy and actually to harm the EU who are engaged in a mission of economic suicide now mm. by imposing the sanctions on Russia. Actually, it's the people of Europe who are paying a really heavy price in terms of that, in terms of cost of living, the disruption to food supply, the energy supplies and so on. It's ordinary people who are paying that price and in some ways Boris is happy to see the EU kind of getting that kick in and for it taking the pressure off at home. But there have been contradictory statements coming out of Zelensky in terms of the talks and dialogue. On the one hand, he talks about negotiations and then the next he'll say, oh, but we don't want to cede any ground to Russia either, keep sending the guns or whatever. And you can't have both those messages. I mean, he's not the key player. He is certainly someone who is being used by Western powers. And, you know, that's not a nice position to be in. But I feel if he was a real uh, strategist who had the interests of the people of Ukraine, then he would be trying to get an end to the war. And if the US and the West aren't in that place, well, then he should be looking outside of that bubble to, you know, non-aligned countries who could play that role. Well, I'd say the truth be told, uh, from the word go, uh, Zelensky probably wasn't strong enough uh, to be that leader. Um he could have stopped the war from starting in the first place and he didn't He didn't take the necessary actions that could have prevented it. Uh, obviously, the Europeans and the Americans and NATO didn't want to stop it either and, uh, unfortunately, Russia didn't either. So uh, there was too many that were uh, happy for the war to start and uh, Zelensky, I'd say, just didn't have the wherewithal to be that leader. Uh, but also, even before, since his election... Um, in 2019, um, he hasn't. He was elected, as we've we've said many times, on a mandate, a powerful mandate. We got about 74 percent of the vote, and it was a peace mandate. And uh, he had promised he would negotiate with the Russians, that he would m- implement Minsk too. But when he got into power, he found that. Uh, in particular, uh, the militants, uh, which the majority of them are of a, a Nazi uh, variety, uh, like the Azov Battalion, uh, they proved to be too powerful for him to contain, and they called the shots. And it, it appeared that, um, I'd say he was actually scared t- to uh, implement Minsk at that stage. And, uh, and then, obviously... It turned out that the Americans had lost interest in Minsk as well. They saw it as an opportunity uh, to undermine uh, Russia, and uh, that's obviously what's going on at present. Uh, but, I mean, there's, it's reached a very difficult stage. There's a bit of a stalemate in terms of the war. Russia's still making progress in certain areas, not in others. Um, and um, too many people are obviously happy for it to, just to, to drag it along. Uh, meanwhile, as Claire was pointing out, uh, the cost for European citizens is going to be uh, dramatic. Uh, we're looking at inflation which is somewhere between 8 and 10% this year. God knows what it'll be like next year. Uh, it obviously depends on how long the war goes on and what the fallout will be. But um, the US and NATO have wanted to isolate Russia for a long time and now they're getting their way. And um, only last week, the Americans uh, sanctioned another 40 billion uh, for Ukraine. Now, people should understand that most of that money will never leave America. 
uh, would actually go to uh, the arms industry. So most of that 40 million is going to the likes of Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and whatever and Boeing and they will then uh, send the weapons to Ukraine. So it's a huge boost uh, to the arms industry. Their shares have gone up by more than 20% since the start of the war. Uh, so happy days for them. And uh, the sorry, sad part about it is that uh, we're at a time where the European Union has probably, uh, in, my, in my experience anyway, I don't think they've ever been as weak. And uh, it's really unfortunate and sad as well for the people of Europe. Uh, they look incredibly uh, powerless. Uh, They're behaving like a complete puppet of US NATO. And every day that passes, we're seeing um, a retreating on the Green Deal, uh, a retreating on just about anything that makes sense in Europe. Uh, we're, uh, we're abandoning pacifism. We're abandoning dialogue and negotiation and uh, we're gone gung-ho military and uh, everything is focused on the military campaign and we've seen no real uh, effort from the European Union uh, to initiate any kind of negotiations that would bring an end to the war and stop the suffering and deaths of innocent Ukrainians. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. We're at a bit of a military stalemate and I mean, I think it's true that the lack of any verified independent coverage of actually the progress of the war from all sides has been a huge problem. It's not been like another war. Mm. This is a war that's been fought based on propaganda and the media and spin, but in actual terms of getting an accurate picture of warfare and military goals and that, it hasn't been comprehensive from the very beginning. So it would seem that the Russians are securing their hold over the general Donbass area eliminating the Ukrainian forces out of Mariupol at a substantial cost of massive devastation and a considerable loss of life. Uh, they would say they haven't gone beyond into taking over the rest of Ukraine. Now, the Russians say, well, we were never, that wasn't our agenda anyway. The others say, ah, yeah, it was, you're just being defeated. Who knows? The mm. bottom line is, is that they have secured the areas generally where there are big Russian majorities the other areas, they're not making progress. That would be a time when anybody interested in peace, and we made the point before that the Pope stepped in and said, look, there has to be dialogue. There has to be negotiation. And Zelensky one day last week said what we said in the plenary weeks ago, this war will only end with negotiation. But nobody is serious about that because their actions are doing the opposite. And that's the sad thing about all this. Like There was a very good a conference in Athens um, from the around the people with Yerifakis and Jeremy Corbyn and Progressive International and that. Uh, they call it the Athens Declaration into how you would end the war and they call for obviously standing with the people of Ukraine and people everywhere who are suffering invasion and displacement, demanding an immediate ceasefire, which you know we never get to hear about, mm. but yes, withdrawal of forces and a comprehensive peace treaty guaranteed by the European Union, the US and Russia in the under the auspices of the United Nations 
calling for respect for international law and for all refugees to have their rights protected. Uh, and then critically opposing the division of the world into completing blocks that invest in rampant militarism, hyper-modern weapons of mass destruction and a new Cold War. Mm. They say, we believe that lasting peace can be achieved only by replacing all military blocs with an inclusive international security framework that de-escalates tensions, expands freedom, fights poverty, limits exploitation, pursues social and environmental justice and terminates the domination of one country by another. And that's basically what we would say as well, but there's no force internationally strong enough arguing for that at the moment. Yeah, and, and listen, uh, it would be brilliant if the UN were more strong, more powerful and more independent. Uh, but the UN has probably been diminished um, very much by the power and the um, total dominance of US imperialism. And uh, it's been uh, unfortunate, but uh, we do need to get back to a, a place where we actually, where international law means something and everybody is held to account. But just on the issue of the war continuing, um, I, I think the media um, have played uh, a very poor role. Um, we obviously don't... Uh, People keep talking about oh you know, where about where about where the hell they go on about, but uh, you're almost not supposed to talk about the other wars about the four hundred thousand dead in in Yemen, a million dead in Iraq, and four hundred thousand plus dead in Afghanistan, uh, but uh, those wars weren't covered like this war was covered. Right mm -hmm. now, you'd be hoping that uh, people seeing the, how terrible war is in Ukraine, that it might make them anti-war in future. But um, I'm still not convinced. But there was a very good guy, um, uh, a fellow called Seth Harp, right? He's, he's an, an American investigative reporter, right? And he's, he's not a left-wing guy or anything, right? But he, he, works, he, was, he was doing that research in Ukraine for Harper magazine in America. And he spent over a month in Ukraine try, as a journalist, right? And he was absolutely struck by what was going on in terms of potential for a journalist to actually cover the war, right? And what he said was that uh, that uh, he'd been doing interviews and, and he said his experience is absolutely striking, if only for the limitations and obstacles he faced in trying to cover the war. And he says, speaking about access for journalists in Ukraine... He says, no one's able to get to the front lines. No one is doing interviews with commanders. No one is going to field hospitals. There aren't any good, ca there's no good casualty numbers. And he said, it slowly dawned on me that it's just the result of the extraordinarily restrictive immediate environment that is over there. It's much more restrictive than in any other war zone he'd ever worked in. And he described, he described the media centres that had been set up by the Ministry of Defence in Ukraine and, he's, and, he's, and how streamlined and comfortable they were for Western reporters. But he says it's almost impossible to get, get, get information that doesn't come through that centralised channel. So there's a great deal of homogeneity in the reports that are coming out of Ukraine, largely because reporters are just going and hanging out at these centres and they're all just getting, they've been fed the same material. And he said that there's, even he says uh, on that, uh, that uh, episode in, uh, in Buka, he said, we weren't, he said, I was there, he says. I, w I was in the city. He says, uh, we couldn't get there for 48 hours. We were restricted. And he says, look what he says, I don't know what happened, he said. He says, everything was monitored. 
he said, this is not how, he says, you can cover the war in any sort of an independent fashion. But he was very impressive, he was. Um, now, I mean, I, I've, I've heard him speak a couple of times, but, I mean, that's a bit really worrying for me. I, but, I mean, just on the whole thing of the American pushing of the war, um, there, there's a brilliant article yesterday by a fellow called Chris Hedges, Right, he's a he's a writer, right, and he says he went on. He, he made out that the United States is trapped in the death spiral of unchecked militarism. Uh, he says they have huge problems at home. He says they have no in- infrastructure programs to repair decaying roads and bridges. He says which require over forty billion to fix, and he says they have over forty three thousand structurally def- uh, deficient bridges. They're they're all over sixty eight years old. He said right. He says there's no forgiveness of one point seven trillion in student debt. He says there's been no effort at addressing income inequality. There's no program. He says to feed seventeen million children to go to bed hungry every night in America. And he says, and there's no help for the 100,000 Americans who die each year of drug overdoses. And he says, wages have been stagnating for 48, 44 years, he said. And there's efforts to get the minimum wage to $15 hours an hour, fifteen dollars an hour have completely failed, right? And he says, the, mon- the monopolization of capital by the military has driven the U.S. debt to $30 trillion. Right, uh, it's last year alone the, the Americans spent more than the next nine biggest spenders put together, including Russia and China. And he says that war has become the raison d'etre of the state. And he says it's used all the time as a as a as a matter of national security. And he says, uh, that, but it's, and obviously he pointed out as well that the forty billion going to Ukraine uh, would be going uh, straight to the arms industry, right? But he also, and then he, he made the point that this forty tr- billion that are given to Ukraine, he says the budget for the Environmental Protection Agency for next year mm. for twenty twenty three is eleven point eight billion, right? And he says uh, there's just over eleven billion also set aside. Uh, for uh, the proposed budget for Centre for Disease Control and Prevention, in other words, to deal with any other new waves of COVID, whatever. Just over 11 billion for that as well. So if you add the two of them together, Ukraine has been allowed more than double those two very important initiatives on their own, right? I mean, um, look at, uh, he says that, the truth be told, he says, all we do in America is war and all proposed solutions are militarily. And he made the point that we're not able to salvage our own society and economy and we're seeking to destroy those of their global competitors, which are especially uh, Russia and China. And he says the US growth rate has fallen to below 2%, while China's growth rate is over 8%. So uh, the US has turned to military aggression and uh, they're out now to... Uh, completely damage the Russian and Chinese economies any way they can uh, in order to continue to be able to compete with them because they're struggling so much at home themselves. But I mean, it was very interesting from, given that this is an American, American perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, the shocking thing about it is, and I think he has summarised it quite well, the corporate capture 
of the US economy by the military industrial complex. But the path that the EU is now treading is going exactly down the same road and it was never supposed to be. I mean, if people listen back to our early podcast when we came here first, we would have been always banging on about militarism and military spending and insecurity and mm. Russiaphobia and anti-Chinese rhetoric. And people probably thought, oh, for God's sake, that's not really relevant to our lives in Ireland. But actually now we see that total relevance of it, where we have war in Europe and sadly Putin's criminal invasion gave them that excuse and that monster that they have now to blame for all of this. And he did make cross that line. But now the checkbooks are open. Like, I mean, the sad thing is, is, and I think you're right, Mick, that the media has played a really strong role in this war because people feel horror and justifiable anger at the war. But normally that would be directed into an anti-war movement. Mm. Like when the war was on in Iraq, it wasn't an anti-American rhetoric. It was an anti-war rhetoric for peace and, and the thing we weren't asking to sanction or, you know, all that sort of thing. But the actual anger has been directed now into an anti-Russian anger. And that's been orchestrated and developed like, you know, and... It is the case that like the first propaganda war was fought by the Americans in the overthrow of the government in Guatemala in the 50s. And they've excelled it now, like that propaganda is an art form. And these wars are being fought on information, disinformation and misinformation. And it's been shrouded in sort of jingoism and so on. But it's actually all an excuse just to make money for the military industrial complex. And we had a presentation at CEDA last week at the Security and Defence Committee where they were saying, now we have to learn the lessons. That's it. We haven't been at the races. We need to start catching up. And they were actually arguing for increased defence expenditure uh, on a massive scale. And, you know, they gave very deceitful figures in terms of, um, you know, by using, I suppose, massaging the figures. But the conclusion of what they were looking for, they said that had the EU increased its budget by the 2% that's required under PESCO and so on, uh, between 06 and 2020, they should have spent an extra one point, no, 1,100 billion. So 1.2 trillion should have been spent on militarism. Extra. Extra on what they said should have been. Mm. And that's now the road that they're barreling down yeah. with this war on. And it is frightening every single meeting we go to. And as Mick said, that's money that could have been building houses, doing health programmes, tackling climate change and all the rest of it. I mean, that actually linked with an, um, an, an, an there was another CEDA uh, meeting on Russian disinformation and propaganda. But just uh, to follow up on Claire's point on that particular uh, meeting that she was talking about, uh, we saw slides where they said, now, just to give you an idea of why we need to catch up, they said it was they said that uh, the EU's combined defence spending increased by 20 percent from 1999 to 2021, right? In 22 years, it only increased by 20%, they said. But they said, compare this now, they said, to the Americans who imp increased it by 66%. But even worse, the Russians have, uh, have increased it by 202% since then, and the Chinese by 592% since, since 1999. Mm. Now, what they forgot to tell us is that America spends 12 times more than the Russians <laughs> every year on defense. The Americans are spending three times more on defense than the Chinese. 
more than three times more than the Chinese. And they picked the figures of 1999 because in 1999, Russia had been pauperized by a US-supported Yeltsin who destroyed the place and left it a basket case. So they hadn't a pot to piss in and they weren't investing in their military hardware in 1999. Mm. Uh, they didn't have an army worth talking about at the time. Mm. And the Chinese had never been fond of the idea uh, they had the Chinese have taken 850 million people out of poverty in the last 20 years, and that was much more their focus than building up a big, huge military arsenal. But because of the threat of the US, they have escalated their spend on military and a lot in the last couple of years. But the Americans are still spending over three times more than the Chinese are. Mm. And I mean, people, please take this on board. The Russians last year spent $66 billion on defence and the Americans spent $780 billion. Please. And we don't yeah. want any of them spending anything on it because yeah. the whole thing is only just to benefit the military-industrial complex. It's just so, absolutely... And, you know, they masquerade at this. They care about the people of Ukraine and that's why they're sending them in arms. But actually, they want the war to get on. And, I mean, the proof of that was a whole number of votes that the left group had put forward mm. at, the, at the mini plenary in Brussels, like saying in terms of the reconstruction of Ukraine, where we put down a motion calling for the cancellation of the Ukrainian debt, like by the IMF and other... In order to rebuild the society. Parliament voted against that. Mm. So they want to keep the debt on the country. They voted against measures which would uh, call for tax transparency in terms of some of the financial tax havens where a lot of, of resources are hidden. And meanwhile, Burrell, the high representative, shaking his hands, going, now it's great that the Americans got the money from the uh, Afghanistan of the Taliban. So the people of Afghanistan's money, which was taken by the US, uh, he was celebrating that and he's saying, now let's seize the Russians' money and use it to rebuild Ukraine, but they won't cancel their debt. Like, mm. this is just nonsense. And the money that they stole from the Afghans, the three and a half billion dollars, uh, they said they were giving it to victims of the 9-11, mm. uh, whereas 16 of the people involved in the 9-11 attacks were actually from Saudi Arabia, America's friend. But instead of attacking Saudi Arabia, they decided to attack Afghanistan instead. But just on the last point on that, we were talking about propaganda and disinformation. Mm. We had a really good session. Uh, they were talking about um, Russian disinformation and propaganda in relation to the war in Ukraine. And we said, uh, Russia engages in disinformation and propaganda, that's a fight. So does everybody else. And that's what we're not accepting. And I actually said that, you know what? You're talking about how much money the Russians spend on it. I'm not so sure who's spending the most money at it. They're probably both spending plenty at it. But I think the Russians are useless at it. Uh, and uh, I even said they were shite. Uh, <laughs> Which uh, and I was reprimanded for that. I didn't but, reprimand. Uh, I just uh, said uh, it wasn't necessary. Um, <laughs> so if the Russian propaganda was so good, I think we'd be, we'd be believing it because they do engage in propaganda and disinformation. But you know what? We don't really fall for it very much. Mm. We don't really believe an awful lot of what they're saying about the war uh, because they make a lot of it up to suit themselves. Uh, but sadly, um, we can't believe our own side either. No, but this There's is the new. This is the new frontier, and actually, it's not an even fight at all. Like. US, NATO and you have excelled. I think going back to the war and the overthrow of the of the government in Guatemala in the 50s, 
they have polished and honed their propaganda here. And this war, more than any other, is being fought on the basis of the manipulation of information. And mm. it is an, a gigantic industry now. So we had this crowd in, supposedly to give independent test expert testimony, and they're called the Barish Institute. Uh, but they're an American think tank. They're a registered NGO, 501 NGO in Washington, D.C., whose lists of alumni have U.S. chiefs of staff, Lockheed Martin, every single U.S. military vehicle you could possibly mm. say or American state forces are in this organisation. And yet this woman was given tests as if they were an independent body. And their whole... Uh, speech, of course, was about the Russian disinformation, that the Russians uh, manipulated the election in the US, even though no evidence has ever emerged that the Russians were responsible for the election of Donald Trump or whatever, you know. So all of those sort of things that they do, oh, cover up for chemical weapons in uh, Syria and all this usual stuff about uh, Russia. But American propaganda, basically. So we made the point, look, at, you might have a view and that might be your an opinion, but we can't have this coming here as if it were a neutral expert opinion. It's not. This is the propaganda of Russia's adversity. And you don't beat propaganda with more propaganda. And they were literally gobsmacking. They turned around. We are not combating propaganda with propaganda. We're, propag we're combating propaganda with the truth. <laughs> right. As if there's only one truth. Like, mm. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. These people think there's one global view, which there clearly isn't. I mean, everybody knows that if you look at things upside down or, you know, if you're standing on a table looking down or you're lying on the floor looking up, your perspective is different. You could be looking at the same thing, but interpret it differently. The idea that the whole world views things the same. It's just not true. Do you find that there's any kind of acceptance in the parliament from me members or anyone else that there is some sort of propaganda or information war also waged from the West in this? Or do you think that they completely see it as a completely Russian phenomenon? It's pathetic. But one of the yeah. points I made uh, is that no, no, they think it's just because we have this sort of misinformation red alert system and all of the member states, including Ireland, were represented at a meeting that I was at. So they were all over there. Their points of contact on this disinformation exchange mm. network. So I went in and all the countries are there and Ireland were there. Now, the two lads from Ireland, now mind you, didn't show up for that session. They might, the computers were there. They weren't. Maybe they ran out for coffee or something. <laughs> but anyway, I assume they'd been there at the other bits. But I made the point about you're talking about cooperating with the G7 and NATO uh, for information. So do you always assume that information from them is bona fides? What do you do, for example, about non-EU NATO members disinformation? For example, the UK, who are spreading disinformation about the Northern Ireland Protocol at the moment. The UK, who pioneered the art form of informa you know, information manipulation in Africa and Indonesia, which led to the massacre of people by fueling in disinformation in those countries. It's well known, well documented. They all do it and they've owned it for years. But mm. in the European Parliament, no, they think it's only Russia and China who does yeah, it. So it's, well, it's that black and white in terms of how <laughs> well, I mean, Damien, things are seen here. It's a fair question, yeah. right? And what I would say to that question is that you could be right... Maybe some of them do see through it, but there's no evidence that, that they conveniently that they see hide it. Well, there's, there's no uh, there's no admission uh, from MEPs that the West engages in the same type. Or it's probably not the same, it's different, it's, it, but it's actually it's more effective yeah. from the West, as far as I can see. Uh, but we do propaganda as, uh, as if it's news. 
and we do misinformation as if it's news. Now, obviously, the Russians will do it as well, and the Russians uh, uh, are are as guilty as the West are, right, with disinformation and propaganda from our perspective. And we'd even be very critical of the Russians in that they're probably they 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 st- stamp out uh, dissent. Uh, something terrible in Russia, especially the left wing. The left wing get hammered in Russia, mm. and the Russian state have been abysmal in the in the treatment of the left, and they're probably cheating them in the elections as well. Mm. But I mean, what what? Just to, to answer your point, at home, for example, right? We've a, a RTE, right? That RTE is state affiliated media. But if you talk about media in China or Russia, it's labelled by by Twitter, for example. Uh, as state affiliated media, but RTE is state affiliated media as Without well. And I mean, uh, for uh, for all my lifetime, I, I've I've seen RTE bring on Fianna Fáil politicians to give us the line on U.S. imperialism for, for as long as I can remember, and without question, as if it's the truth. Mm. I mean, as if this is the way of the world. And if someone if if someone else went on and actually gave the Russian position. I mean, they'd have been hounded out of the place and argued with, right? But the Fianna Fáil stuff uh, promoting US imperialism and, and NATO expansion, uh, for as long as I can remember, uh, it goes unquestioned. I mean, Fianna Fáil supported the war in Iraq. It supported the war in Afghanistan. It supported the war in Libya. It's completely silent on the war in Yemen. I mean, in all fairness... There's block what, what, bookings on hotel rooms in Kiev yeah. at the moment. There's yeah. so many of them out there yeah, morning, I mean, noon and night. Why, why, uh, how, imagine if we had an independent media at home rather than a, a, an RTE station that actually has helped to keep Fianna Fáil and, and Fianna Gael in power and obviously Labour as well over the years. I mean, uh, we've had... The state is over 100 years old. Mm. and We've only ever had right-wing government with one of those three parties in it. And the media uh, bear a huge responsibility for the fact that we have right-wing governments, whether we like it or not. I mean, they criticised us for being on Russian television. It's not that we did an interview, they just, Russian television happened to broadcast some of our speeches. Well, Russian television happened to broadcast Michal Martin giving out <laughs> about the Russian um, simulation of a nuclear attack on Ireland. Russian television carried that. So this idea that it's just totally monolithic, that it just is all praise to Putin all the time, and that that's actually not true, but exactly it's similar. As Mick would say, they generally mm. tend to support the government as RTE does. And this is the two-faced hypocrisy because one of the big things they were moaning about, about Russian disinformation, was they said they're very concerned now about what's going on in Africa, where the Russians and the Chinese are actually down there to advance their own strategic interests. And we go, sorry, excuse me, what are you down there for? Are you not down there for that? And they're going, What? We're a democracy. They are authoritarian regimes. We said, you're former colonial empires who are back down there again doing what you were doing before in a different format. And they actually had the audacity to say they were really worried that Russia was very successful in Africa now. Shock horror in discrediting NATO. Like as if everyone in, in Africa is in Egypt, like that they can't make their own mind up. They're just puppets of Russia. Yeah. Not that they'd say, yes, NATO is bad. And yes, do you know what? These Europeans who came and conquered us and made slaves of us and, you know, and enriched their cities on the blood of our ancestors. No, they're not down here now trying to help us out. They're up to their old tricks I, I, again. I think the Africans now know pretty well that whether they're European, American, Canadian, Russian or Chinese, uh, all those countries are down there uh, for their own financial benefit. Let's yeah. talk about um, NATO expansion because we've talked about 
um, a resolution to the war. We talked about the disinformation <laughs> during the war. We talked about how hard it is to figure out what the hell is happening there. Um, and we've talked about a, a path to peace now at three months in. Now, in the midst of this, we have a decision, very quick decision by um, Sweden and Finland um, to jointly enter NATO, which massively extends over doubles the, the NATO border with Russia in the midst of a war yeah. that's three months in. It's causing lives and it's absolutely devastating. Um now, the path to peace probably doesn't involve immediate NATO expansion on the border, I would say. Um, what do you think is happening in Finland and Sweden where public opinion has flipped completely? Uh, there's now huge support, especially in Finland, to to join NATO. And they see that as a genuine uh, way of, secure, of, of guaranteeing their security at this moment in time where Russia has invaded Ukraine. What, what do you think about this? Well, the fact that the... the well, first of all, they're not putting it to a referendum because it says mm. they have time. And despite the fact, uh, while Russia uh, was occupying loads of Eastern Europe uh, during the Cold War, uh, there weren't near as much of a panic. And Russia is not near as powerful militarily now as it was then. And now it's a huge crisis. But I th- people need to understand who NATO are and what they are. And... In terms of why are the, I mean, uh, there's no doubt about it. You're right. Uh, I'd say there is a lot of public opinion in favour of China and NATO. Probably due also to this information and war we've been hearing as well. The yeah, past ones. but I mean, I mean, who, who's giving them the information? Who's giving them? Who who who's controlling what they're watching on television? What who's controlling what they're watching on the radio? Listening to on the radio. I mean, they're being fed a certain line, and. A lot of the people are, are not digging any deeper and they're saying, well, God, this is terrible. And it is terrible. The war in Ukraine is terrible and it's absolutely shocking how many innocent Ukrainians are going to die in it. Uh, but which is all the more reason why we should have been looking for peace, trying to prevent the wars more, more at the start and then looking for peace once it started and, and try and get a negotiated settlement. But in actual fact, uh, I would say that an awful lot of the people think, oh, yeah, this is the way forward now. But the truth is, I mean, NATO was a post-war mechanism and was designed to maintain U.S. dominance and control over Western Europe. It was designed to advance U.S. geostrategic interests. And it was also a huge element of it was to violently suppress (coughs) any notion of socialism or communism. That was a big part of NATO. And NATO got up to all kinds of things in all Western countries to make sure that the communists were hammered because they were scared of, of a change of system. Now, I mean, communism, you, you, you really get shot for, for talking about communism nowadays mm-hmm. because they made communism a bad word. The idea of actually uh, trying to create a more fair society and rather than have rampant capitalism where uh, uh, the wealth of the, of the few increased more and more and the general public uh, paid the price for it. Well, you would nearly get shot on our, our good colleague who we were criticised for associating with, but whom we considered a great honour to be associated with, Tatiana Sadonka, who was a Latvian MEP, was actually arrested. She's a 72-year-old lady. Uh, she's been an MEP for many years. She was arrested two Saturdays ago for protesting uh, or trying to, well, actually intervene to stop a protest of people who were objecting to the Latvian authorities taking down um, 
statues of Soviet soldiers who basically fought the Nazis. So we have this whole rewriting of history and rewriting of communism, mm. but that's probably a story for another day. In terms of Finland and Sweden, let's be honest about it, because there are people in Ireland who are trying to use this to sort of undermine our neutrality. Finland and Sweden were not neutral. They were non-aligned really in name only. I mean, Sweden has a massive military industry. Both of them were very much sort of involved, if you like, in that Western militaristic sphere. It's not like Ireland, like, you know, it is a, a different uh, situation there. I think it's very important to say the vote isn't going to the people. It is a product of this um, attempt to... Uh, frog march the EU in the direction of a defence union, which they want to see by 2024. And there were only nominally seven independent uh, neutral countries, of which nominally Finland or Sweden were two. Austria are another. We are one, Malta, Cyprus. I think that's it, actually. So if they can kind of get rid of them, it's chipping away at that area and it's uh, blurring the lines with, uh, um, you know, involvement with NATO again. So it's 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 not dangerous for Ireland, but it will be used as a stick to beat the anti yeah. uh, the defensive neutrality uh, side. And one Ireland. thing that definitely strikes me about what I've understood from the discussions in these two countries and other places where you can see there's changes of, of positions in, in, in respect of what the left is saying about NATO in certain countries is this pr presentation of it as either we join NATO yeah. or we're left defenseless. That's how a lot of the discussion is going. And a lot of them are saying that the EU mutual defence clause is only a smoke alarm, whereas we need an actual fire department of, a, of NATO behind us. They're all kind of presenting it as this is the only other solution. It's so and contradictory, which, isn't it? Which oh. when you think about what we've just been speaking about with who controls the information about it, there's a serious lack of creativity if that's mm. the only thing that's been discussed in these countries about the only immediate solution. Either we join NATO or we're left there on our own. Well, you know? I mean, Claire's point about Sweden and Finland being well immersed in the NATO arrangement already is a very good point. Uh, and yet they had a decent relationship with Russia. There was no missiles in Sweden or Finland aimed at Russia. There was no missiles in Russia aimed at Finland or Sweden. Well, do you know what now? There will be soon. Mm -hmm. Well, the on gas both has been sides. already to Finland. Well, I mean, so. yeah, but well, they wouldn't pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then Ursula von der Leyen goes, the cheek of those Russians now starving <laughs> and, you know, making our people cold. You weren't prepared to pay for it. And you're sorry now, but, you know, I'm like, sorry seriously. now, but the Europe Europeans are, are yeah. have imposed sanctions that are hurting their think? own people. Yeah. And uh, that needs to be said in uh, loud and clear at all times. But there's, I, I'm... There's not a shadow of a doubt, but in a few years' time, the position of Sweden and Finland will be less secure than it was last year. And the world as well, because we already see now, obviously, Turkey is saying, no, they're not joining NATO. But meanwhile, they're um, barreling into um, Syria to try and seize yeah. more land in Syria. And basically, that's probably a bargaining chip saying, now we're going in here, we're taking this. So if you want to play ball and you want feckin'... Finland and Sweden in, yeah. you want to acknowledge our right to take more serious. So the whole world is becoming more insecure, like peace is war, war is peace. It's, it's just so, mad. And, and will the people that, uh, I mean, people were rightly up in arms about Russia invading a sovereign country like Ukraine. Will they be up in arms about Turkey invading the sovereign state of Syria? Or does that not count? Mm. 
I think well, you know Ireland the answer there. Wake, well, Ireland yeah. want to wake up to as well is like that they are really um, going ahead with this idea of a rapid deployment. 5,000 troops being bandied together for rapid deployment mm. in when the Russians come over the mountains or whatever. I mean, ridiculous stuff. A lot of this stuff isn't going to be used in the way in which it, it says it is. But it is uh, increasing division. It's causing tensions, it's escalating things rather than diffusing it. And the voices of peace are, again, still silenced and not um, heard. Mm. So it's, it's you know, three w months on, things aren't looking really any better. There was a little glimmer maybe from Italy and France and Germany are a little bit talking more about the economic consequences. We yeah. can't have Russia devastated, but they're still not in a strong enough place mm. or their people haven't been suffered enough in order to make them sit up and, and uh, pull themselves out of the American apron strings. Yeah. Let's uh, wrap up then on uh, a different note. Um, did you hear George Bush speak the other day with his Freudian slip? Poor Egypt. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. God, the poor man. <laughs> Uh, it was priceless. Do you want to tell? No, go ahead. What you, you, I, 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 have you got a statement there? It's I'll priceless. Pull it up, actually. Yeah. Oh God! We'll just take a little but break. it was so true. Like I well, know that's the, that was the real good part. Yeah. This is what George Bush said for anyone who was under a rock for the past few weeks. Um, so he was talking about um, the result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. Yeah. I mean, Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Completely got it wrong. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Iraq is still on his the mind. The truest world he ever said, yeah. Yeah, that's the, probably the most, exactly the truest thing he'd ever come out of his mouth. But uh, what is he doing anyway, making public commentary on Ukraine? <laughs> like, this is the George Bush Institute or something. World I, power. I mean, um, it, it's interesting as well uh, on, on the war crimes. Well, when you push and Blair, the biggest yeah, war criminals I mean, of our age, and now we have the call uh, for now, prosecuting uh, Russian uh, war crimes. Uh, Amer uh, the US have failed to sign the convention, uh, the, the, the um, International uh, Criminal Court. The International Criminal Court, uh, Statute of Rome uh, regulation because they don't want any of their people ever held uh, to account for uh, alleged war crimes. But now they want Putin to be held, to be, to be investigated for war crimes. Well, you know what now? We actually think Putin should be investigated for war crimes, as should Zelensky, as should uh, Biden, uh, for his, some of his past behaviour, the both Clintons, Bush, Obama... Blair, can we investigate them all, please? And can we investigate the French for war crimes in the Sahel? Uh, we, 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 we're going to be busy. It's disgusting because, I mean, mm. Russia hasn't signed up to the ICC as well either. I don't think mm. Ukraine or has Ukraine. either. Or Ukraine. Oh. So none of them are in on it. Like, So yeah. you have this international body which doesn't have any jurisdiction over the powerful countries. The only people prosecuted ever in its history, 46 people, and they were all Africans, basically. Um, nobody else. And I mean, it's just picking and choosing what crimes. So that's not credible. Mm. I mean, the Americans actually, and WikiLeaks did a big investigation 
on this or reveal the information how they basically engaged in bilateral arrangements with over 100 countries where they used their economic might to bully these countries into saying we'll do business with you but under no circumstances are any of our people ever to be prosecuted for war crimes. They even threatened in 2018 that they would sanction and arrest the judges of the International Criminal Court if they tried to go after any US personnel for war crimes in Afghanistan. Mm. And these are the people now who are standing over people still being uh, kept in Guantanamo, yeah. let us remember, picked up without trial and kept there for years, uh, who are arguing for war crimes to be uh, investigated and seriously. Don't, don't, and don't forget uh, that only last year, the International Criminal Court uh, said that they were looking at investigating Israel Defence Forces, Israeli mm. Defence Forces, uh, for war crimes against Palestinians. Mm. And the Americans threatened anyone that would uh, engage in it, that under no circumstances were the Israelis to be tried for war crimes. Mm. This is how, how low international law has sunk. Yeah. And we'd like the European Union to start speaking the truth and own up to the fact that, you know what now? There's two sides and both sides are behaving poorly mm. and both sides are prepared to say anything that suits their own geopolitical agenda. Shanae, for for listening and I uh, will catch you next week. Bye bye. Adios. Slow all yeah.